You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 687. Compromise for your dream, but never compromise on your dream. Imran Khan. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now guys, today on the show, we have Naomi Beatty, and she is a screenplay consultant, a screenwriting teacher, and former studio executive that worked on films like Twilight, Percy Jackson, and The Lightning Thief, and The Stanford Prison Experiment. And she also runs a website called Write plus co and she works with screenwriters on helping them get from idea to final product helps them look at things from a studio's perspective and helps them avoid a lot of the mistakes these first time mistakes and mistakes in general that she sees and has seen after reading thousands and thousands of screenplays uh, over the course of her career we had a really interesting conversation we we go off the deep end a little bit sometimes, uh, analyzing films and talking about shows and projects and things like that. But we get into the details about how to avoid some of these mistakes, as well as what a studio is looking for and how to better prep your project to be noticed by the studio. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Naomi Beatty. Enjoy today's episode with guest host, Jason Buff. On this episode, I'm talking with Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella about their films, The Battery and Tex Montana Will Survive. We'll talk about all the stuff that went into making The Battery, the difficulties of making a really, really low-budget independent film, the cold, hard reality of being an indie filmmaker today, as well as the new way they've approached distribution for their newest feature. So get comfortable. You might want a nice cold beverage or some tea. You know, maybe some aroma in the room, maybe some lavender, some some Jacquard Noir, and enjoy this episode, because I had a good time talking with these guys. Ever heard the show? Yeah, I've listened to a few episodes. Yeah, I've been subscribed for a while, but then I went on a tangent and subscribed to every podcast ever, and now I can't ever remember (laughs) what I'm supposed to listen to. No, I I used to, like, my favorite way to learn filmmaking, aside from DVD commentaries, was listening to podcasts, you know, because you can sit there for a good 
hour and a half listening to a filmmaker and, and you never get that access on just like interviews and stuff. That's literally how, yeah, that was one of my big tools when I was deciding I wanted to make the battery was podcasts. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I started back with um, creative screenwriting, Jeff Goldsmith's podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I listened to a ton of those and then I just went, what else is there? And I started <laughs> downloading everything. What other ones did you listen to? My my big one, because I was trying to make a film in uh, 2012 that didn't end up happening, but I would listen to one called Film Method all the time. And it was two two um, women that were like, tr- they had already made their own film and they were just interviewing people that had worked on it and talked about it, but they stopped recording it in 2012. So it was like, oh, all yeah. of a sudden just came to an end. But just it was, a void now. Well, that's kind of what I based mine off of was just the idea that I want to learn stuff and people want to, you know, they want to hear what actually goes into filmmaking, you know, instead of like these kind of generic conversations, you know, I like to go into, you know, the nuts and bolts, money issues, technical, you know, the the cameras that were used and stuff like that. So no, absolutely. I mean, it's that's the important stuff. And it's that's why I listened I watched every behind the scenes extra on every DVD I had for 10 right. years. And I listened to director's notes for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if you know that podcast. That was Yeah, yeah, yeah. One. Um gosh, there was another one. I'm a I'm like a big YouTube and Vimeo guy. Like I watch <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the camera geeks on there, you know, and all those camera reviews and tests. Like I love uh Philip Bloom. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bloom is like my hero. Yeah, he he's uh there's a lot I think most of this stuff cuz I also do um I'm an amateur cinematographer, you know, so I I just sit there and watch everything about lighting tutorials and everything about lenses and and whatever, you know. And I I don't think it's like you don't even need to go to school anymore if you've got an internet connection. No, absolutely. Get on, not. you know. I mean, that's I mean everything that we everything that I did technically for the battery and now Tex Montana has been through tutorials. It is insane. Like I'm, I'm, I mean, I was just telling Jeremy the other day. I was like, well, I'm trying to fix a couple shots in Tex Montana color wise. So I'm like, it's time to watch another 20 hour Da Vinci Resolve tutorial. <laughs> Yeah, right. I spent most of my time listening to screenwriter uh, interviews and stuff too because of, back when I didn't think I could actually make a movie, I just wanted to be able to write a script. And just, uh, just to hear different processes is amazing because right. no one does it the same way. And so you'll start to think that your your writing routine is weird and then you'll listen to 20 different people say that theirs is 20 different variations on some same thing. So it doesn't matter. It's just getting, it's just putting the work in. I mean, that's one of the things that I I just recently put up a blog post about the creative process. And and there's a bunch of videos um, about screenwriters only talking about the creative end, you know, and how they schedule out their day and how they actually write, you know, and it's, it, it was nice to hear almost all of them say, well, I spend most of the morning procrastinating. Mm-hmm. And then when I start hating myself, <laughs> I'll kind of sit right. down and I'll start writing, you know. So you realize that everybody that has this drive to write screenplays or to write anything, they're all kind of fighting with themselves, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a daily grind. But you know, the thing that I've unfortunately the thing I've taken away from every single interview I've I've heard is that the the, you know, the the successful writers are the ones who treat it like a day job. They know mm-hmm. that they are going to put in a certain amount of hours every day in the seat, butt in seat and just writing. And boy, just getting your butt in the seat is the hardest part for me because I will find everything else to do. When you started screenwriting, what were the resources that you found were the most helpful? You know, it's funny. I started probably very similar to a lot of people. I, I found a Sidfield, you know, screenplay book 
from mm. God knows when. It was all yellowed and old for like 25 cents in a used <laughs> bookstore. And, you know, people kind of laugh off those, those manuals, but that really helped me understand the, the structure and the formatting. And then once you get that down, it's just about reading other screenplays. I just read as many screenplays as I could and you start to see how you go, oh, okay, well, this is the structure, but I can tweak it to make it, you read a certain way that I want to read. And I'm, I like to write mine with absolutely zero camera interaction at all i really like almost to write it like a prose story where it just flows and yeah they say jeremy jeremy's screenplays sometimes read like novels it's kind of <laughs> it's, yeah but, but it's sparse, good but sparse novel they're not like dense I, like i, I have right. a rule i refuse to have any action beat go over uh, four sentences i will not do it because i know people skim so uh, i have little rules for myself and i don't like to I don't like to break up sequences with like interiors and exteriors. I kind of like to try to let them flow into each other and just just drop maybe while he walks into th- and then the next line, the bathroom. There, there's no like interior, the bathroom because ex- you want to just keep a, a pace and a kind of momentum going. I'm really about readability because when I, it's so hard for me to read some screenplays, they're just mm-hmm. so dense and just so much stuff on the page. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people think that you have to follow very strict codes, you know, and, and what I've learned from talking to other screenwriters is that, you know, as long as you're telling the story and as long as you're bringing people into the movie, that you can kind of do whatever you want to. You know, you have to have a certain amount of structure, but you, there's a lot of leeway with that. No, there really is. There's no, like I said, I mean, that's what I like about John August and, and Craig Mason. You know, they'll, they'll talk to you about the nuts and bolts on their podcast all the time. But for the most part, every rule that someone tells you that you can't break, they will just say, no, that's not true. If that were the case we wouldn't have this movie or that movie or this movie or whatever. So you can break whatever rule you want if you're writing a good story. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So what what would your typical day be, you know, talking about screenwriting? What, do you have to set like a date that you're going to finish by or do you just sit like sit down? Do you do you do a bunch of writing out notes and blueprints? What what kind of is the Uh, I'm so weird when it comes to writing. It's well, uh, you know, unfortunately, I have not had to write on a deadline yet. I have not, you know, taken a job where it needs to be in by this time. So it's very hard for me to manufacture my own, my own deadlines. So typically, I will just start writing. I will just start writing and then I'll write, I'll do what's like a beat sheet where I will write down just slug lines of, of the scenes that I, that I know are going to happen up until a point where I don't know anymore. And then I'll go and I'll start writing that. And then mm-hmm. the, I was telling, uh, I was telling someone the other day, I think I was telling your wife, Christian, that I, if you look through my notebooks, you will see the same beat sheet written over and over and over again. And I don't know why I do it. I will go back after writing like 10 or 15 pages and I will write again the same beat sheet of the scenes and I'll maybe add a little bit in between or I'll reorganize them. But for the most part, I, I think it's just me refamiliarizing myself with where I'm at and then hopefully something will spring up and I'll add another beat to the end of that thing. And then I'll go back and start writing again and I'll take right. walks and lots of showers and just <laughs> I I ruminate on it a lot. I think I, I think you get a lot more writing done when you're not writing than you actually think. Yeah, you are. lots of Starbucks trips. Oh yeah. I can't <laughs> I have a weird thing about being able to write in the place I live. There's something about being there as often as I am where it's just like I can't I can't disconnect myself from just the routine of of, of living in the home. So I need to try to get out of it as much as possible. Yeah, I think that's that's a lot of people have told me that. I mean, I'm the same way too. I cannot. I'm I'm here in my office right now. I've tried to write here, 
and it just doesn't happen. You know, so I'll go off to Starbucks and I'll sit there. And when you don't have all the distraction, that's when you say, okay, I can sit here and actually do the hard part, which is, you know, the work. Focusing on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's something about the chatter of being in a public place. I like that kind of white noise of people talking and just the mumbling and the, and the ruckus of just people moving around. That helps too, other than the silence. Another problem I have with writing, which people should not do, is. I wake up every day when I sit down to write and I go back and tinker with everything I've already written. So mm-hmm. I will kill an hour or two hours just perfecting what's already written. So, you know, in a good way, when the script is finally done, it's been, it's been polished in a way that it's like it's a second or third draft, but it takes so long to get to that final draft because I just go back and move commas and moving commas is not writing. <laughs> Do you do one like, you know, as they say, vomit draft. Do you try to get like one first draft down and then go back? And no, no. That's what I wish I could do. I really wish I could just move, just barrel ahead and not worry about what happened before. But I cannot. I will keep going back and tinkering and tweaking. And then and then hopefully by the time – like when if I wake up and I tinker with the pages I wrote the day before, hopefully by the time I get to the end of those, I've kind of pushed myself into the process a little bit. So how did you guys meet? You guys have been friends for a while, right? And, and where are you from? Uh, we're both we're both from central Florida. You know, we're yeah. like right outside Disney World. But uh, we, we met when we were kids basically. I mean I was definitely a kid. I was like 13 or something. Mm-hmm. We started making movies – back then and uh that was kind of our film school which was it was also our regular school because we dropped out of school uh florida education system yeah yeah so i mean that's like staying in school in florida but yeah we just started making movies uh back then like with like a 500 hundred dollar sony handycam and um what year are we talking here just so i know the technology let me think about this uh we shot the bags in 2000 okay okay so this is pre-hd Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, it was like almost pre computer editing. Like I, I, I still remember buying a hard drive for like $500 for like a, like a 40 gigabyte hard drive. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were cutting our, weren't we cutting our shorts before we did the bags on like, like VHS to V8, like a oh, VCR yeah. to VCR? We were, we were editing VCR to VCR when like in 1996 or seven or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we just did that. We, we, uh, we made some features with my sister. And, um, got, got into some film festivals and, um, then we became adults and we had to get jobs. That was, the <laughs> yeah. Bummer. So then it was like a, just like an entire decade where we just, you know, waited tables and so on. Yeah. We didn't do much for 10 years and then, uh, we kind of moved apart and then I was trying, well, I'm going to go pound the pavement as an actor. And then that got really demoralizing really quickly. And I had spent a lot of time. Uh, like we were talking about watching those DVD extras and reading those interviews and listening to those podcasts and thinking, you know what? I think it's about time that the, to get the band back together. The technology had finally caught up and I started to believe that there was a way to make a movie that could stand, you know, against real quote unquote real movies now. Mm-hmm. So I felt like we should jump back in it because that was the thing about our early movies, even though they were fun and, you know, we, we played festival. I remember the director of the Sarasota Film Festival telling us, you know, I'm, I'm going to put your movie in this festival, but because it's clear that you guys made a real movie, but it's also very clear that you have absolutely no money because you know, it's just the, the, the quality was so. Well, he said it was the first movie they had ever played that wasn't shot on film. Mm-hmm. So okay. it was crazy. I mean, he was even talking about like maybe having a micro budget f- features section in, in following, uh, festivals because we he just didn't know what to do with ours 
Um, so the, but, but by the time the, the technology caught up, it was like, okay, well, we can make something that you could literally play in a theater and people wouldn't be like, ew, what was it shot on? My face? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, I definitely know that feeling because, I mean, I think I'm a little older than you guys, but, um, you know, when I was in film school, it was like, that was the only option. We could only, we could shoot on 16 millimeter and like spend, Everything we had, you know, and like spend 30, it was easy to spend like 30,000 bucks on a little crappy 16 millimeter film because you had to send it off to the lab or the other option was to shoot on VHS. So there's a lot of people, you know, now that are coming back to it after it's like everybody realized, okay, now the technology's caught up. All these people that couldn't make films when they were, you know, college age are coming back to it, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's such a, you know, it's, it's such a democratic process now. It's, it was like the art that no one was allowed to get in unless you had permission or money. And now that's not the case. Right. Okay. So you went to, where did you go? You went um, to New York area or where were you at? Yeah, actually Christian's dad got a, a show on the food network and moved up uh, to New England, Connecticut area to, uh, to shoot the show. And he, he was like, you know, he's like a second father to me. So he's like, hey, I know you want to be an actor. We're going to go live like 40 minutes away from New York City if you want to come live with us. So I I hugged my family goodbye and moved up, <laughs> moved up there for uh, you know, 12 yeah, years. Yeah, I, I mean, we he moved up there with me. And then within like six months of me living up there, I was like, I want to move back to Florida. And, and then I left him with my parents. And then their entire family ended up moving back to Florida and I stayed. I was there uh, just until this last – until uh, this last October, but um, mm -hmm. I can't. I got to get out of Florida. I can't. I can't, <laughs> I can't take it. <laughs> so you were like what on the couch or something for up in there in the? Oh in no, there they were. They, <laughs> no, I had a. I, they they had a room for me. They had. I mean, I, it was like uh, I was their second, their third, third child. So um, it was a great living situation. And then I ended up, you know, I got a job and I got my own place and I moved in with a girl and, I, you know, I settled in up there when they all left. Mm -hmm. I need seasons. I was just talking about how I can't I can't deal with this warm winter down here. It's creeping me out. <laughs> I'm a very seasonally, uh, you know, uh, yeah. creative person. If, you know, if it's nice out all the time, all I want to do is do fun stuff. I kind of need those dark, cold winter months to get a little, uh, you know, to turn my thoughts inward and, and, and helps to create. And read and focus. Right. Maybe snow every once in a while. Oh, it's so nice. I just, <laughs> I just want to be able to drive to the store without like driving my car off a sheet of ice. <laughs> I mean, that just flipped me out. I stopped driving for like four years when I lived up there because I mean, I only lived up there for two years, but I, I just refused to drive on the snow. And then I got scared of driving in general because I was like, I haven't driven in four months. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's focus on filmmaking. When, when was the, I mean, what was the, the kind of seed that got you guys started with the battery? What, where did that kind of begin? Well, there was this um, online kind of – they were going to – there was a site called Massify that was going to uh, make a movie completely through the community. So they were taking pitches for scripts and then they were taking director videos and then they were casting all through this website. So I sent in uh, – I was I made an audition video and I wanted to make it kind of like a short film so it stood out. So I made this little two-minute short about a guy and his friend who kind of document their day-to-day -day life in uh, a zombie apocalypse world this little two minute nothing video um and nothing ever came of that site or that movie uh, i believe it became perkins 14 one of the uh eight films to die for in that series or whatever it was but um but i couldn't shake the idea of this like just two guys wandering around in the woods 
um, in, a, in a post-apocalyptic situation. And so then I started thinking about, well, the way you – if you're going to make a no-budget movie, it's – the way you should do it is you should, you should tailor it to what you have. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And in my mind, that's we'll be not, right that's back not after a word from lacking our in story. You could write a, a creative story around any situation. So and I now figured, back to the if show. If we have no money, what's a, what's a way to do that? Okay, we'll just shoot it in the woods, right? And then if there are zombie, if there are people trying to avoid zombies, well, if, if they're smart, they're going to avoid cities. So they'll be in the woods. And that way we could get around all that stuff. And it just kind of came became a way for me to um, take the zombie genre and turn it inward and focus on how two different minds would, would be affected by that rather than do this big grand, you know, macro scale, the whole world is, is dying. Yeah. And at mm-hmm. the same time that like, he's thinking about getting back into film, I have, I w- had become a food photographer Okay, and the best food photography camera <clears throat> was the Sorry. 5d. So right. I had a 5d Mark two. So I already had, the camera that was like changing the the indie filmmaking world, I just so happened to have to have that for my job. So it was like the kind of perfect storm is as he was thinking about this movie, uh, I had the equipment to make a movie, sort of. Mm-hmm. I had the camera at least. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's basically where it started. Just um just just tailoring a story to to what I knew would be cheap. Uh, and I, you know, there was a long time where I could not convince anybody that you could make a movie for the, the kind of money I was talking about. I just couldn't. I remember I was introduced to some like rich guy at a bar and uh, he started talking to me like a big wig. And as soon as I mentioned $6,000, he just laughed and walked away. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that, that happens a lot. You know? Well, it doesn't happen as much anymore. You know, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's people are coming around to the fact that movies can be made for nothing. Well, you know, the funny thing that I run into is so many people think that they need, you know, a hundred thousand or $200,000 to make, you know, a little indie movie. It's and crazy. It's ridiculous. It, it frustrates me to no end. I've seen so many people just waste money. They just waste money. And I don't understand, like, the whole, my whole concept going into this was, look, I believe we can do this, but if we can't, if it doesn't work and I get the money, I got the money from like 10 different people. So it would be like little chunks of $600. So nobody was going to be broke. No one was going to lose their house and no one was going to hate me. That was, it's just like, just, you know, hedge your bets, write something that you believe in that you could do for an incredibly small amount. And then don't, don't break anybody. Don't lose any friends over it. Had you been acting before? Yeah. I'd always been like more of a writer and an actor. I did, I did a bunch of plays when I went up there, uh, up to the North and, you know, I was always the actor in our movies when we were making them younger. I was in all the plays in high school. So I wanted to be an actor or a writer. And it wasn't until I got the confidence from listening to all these interviews with, with other filmmakers and, and, and watching movies and starting to understand them more that I was like, well, you know, I can, I can, I, I'm just going to direct this thing. I'm just going to do this thing straight through. It's going to be my little, my little creature. Um, but it was really, it took a long time for me to say, I'm directing this because I had never been in those shoes before. Sorry, Christian, you were going to say something? Oh, I, w- I was just going to say the other thing about budgets is that, um, I think it's a hard thing for people to wrap their head around that equipment can be rented, you know? And mm-hmm. like, in fact, it always is rented in large budgets even. Um, so like that was one of the things that people come up and they're like, you know, like you guys couldn't have made that movie for $6,000. It's like, it costs more for the equipment. And I'm like, I, I mean, I used a Zeiss lens, but it, 
it was $150 to rent it for the whole shoot. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's always, I said, the only thing I owned was the camera. And even that would have been $250 to rent. Right. So, you know, I think that even that seems to be a, a, a barrier of entry for people, but it shouldn't be. It's it's not. Yeah, it's, it's funny because, you know, I've shot a couple of shorts down here. My cameras, I've only got a 60D and I've got a couple of friends who I've got one friend who has a, a, a 5D Mark III and has never used it. Like it was a gift from her, her husband. Oh, it's and so it. I'm just like, Hey, uh, do you mind if we borrow your camera for this shoot and you know, whatever? And she's like, yeah, sure. Whatever. I don't care. I've never even, I don't even know how to turn it on. So it's, it's just like the equipment now has, there's no barrier, you know, in exactly. terms of equipment. I'm, I mean, I'm shooting on a Canon C100 now mm-hmm. and I let my friend borrow it all the time and he's another filmmaker. Yet meanwhile, he went and shot a feature on an iPhone. And I was like, why didn't you just borrow my camera? And he's like, I was afraid to ask. So now he borrows it all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, now that he knows. Yeah. I, I think that just, I think people also, I mean, one of the hardest things for me to do is ask for favors. I'm really bad at asking for favors, but you'd be amazed the amount of things that you can get just asking. I mean, even just, you know, you know a couple of weeks ago, we were shooting uh, something new for, uh, to add into Tex Montana. And we, we had like put a budget aside for, okay, if these people want uh, money, here's what we're willing to spend. And then we go there and then we introduce ourselves. We tell them what we're doing and then they just let us do it for free. And it's just, it's amazing. Like how often you can find, you know, the things that you need just through, from, through people's generosity. Everyone just balloons up in their, in their mind what these budgets have to be. And they just, they really don't have to be that big, especially for your first one. Mm-hmm. Now, can you guys talk a little bit about the filmmaking process? I know you've talked a lot about the making of the battery, um, but uh, can you just talk, you know, for indie filmmakers, can you talk about the process that you went through to create that, the, produ- the maybe a little bit of pre-production and the production process? Well, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, are we allowed to curse? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I was a bit of a shit show. But I mean, it was a lot of a shit show. Well, okay. Well, that's the one thing that should be, should be very much noted is that we, you know, for the longest time, because Christian was down in Florida and I was up in, up in Connecticut kind of on my own trying to get this thing going. And I'm not a producer. Like I said, I'm very bad at asking for people, for things from people. And I I finally had to set an arbitrary date. I said, you know, August 1st, we're doing this thing. That's it. August 1st is the date. And you know, I got locations squared away, but you know, b- b- between casting zombies and, and getting all the props together and, and, and trying to work out a schedule, which I'd never worked out a, a movie schedule before, uh, these things were just like beyond my grasp a little bit. And so that really, really hurt us in the actual production was that we just, we had about three full days of pre-production. Once Christian got up there, we had three days to buy all the props, get all the zombies like in order, get the crew, you know, our small crew shot lists, yeah, shot lists up to where we were shooting. So if there's anything to be learned is plan as much as you can before you get to set, because everything will go wrong when you get to set. And if you, if you plan for the things that you can, that you can fix, then, then when everything else goes to shit, you'll, you'll be ahead of yeah. the game. Meanwhile, meanwhile, I'd only ever shot like, two silent four minute short films before I got up there. I was still reading how to, how to use the camera when I got up there. Cause I was like, <laughs> I mean, I know how to do photography, but 
I did not know cinematography at all. Well, I saw the the clip of um, I haven't seen the full documentary behind the scenes, but I saw the you looking at that book Master, Master Shots. Shots Master Shots, and I thought that was kind of a joke. But was that were you no, like that actually was not a joke? 100%. At all. <laughs> and those books are awesome. The Master Shots books, yeah. great. But that's the thing too is like you have to just there has to be kind of a blind youthful confidence when you go into something like this because if you think about all the ways in which you can fail you just won't do it you know and it's like i know christian is talented in a way that i'm not i know he's he's going to solve any technical problem that we run into and i i have faith in my acting and my writing and understanding of what i want the story to look like and it's just like at some point you're going to run into stuff you don't really know but as long as you keep it to a manageable budget like I said, if you screw up, whatever. You know what? No one's no one's going to die. So you just have to have this kind of blind confidence and just go in and do it. I think is learn as much as you can from all the free information that's out there and then just do it because uh, man, if you really think about all the ways you could screw it up, you just you might as well just wait tables. Yeah. And I mean, no one's no one's come back and like called me on the shots that are out of focus or the shots that are overexposed and all this other stuff that I can see and that like pain me. Uh, nobody calls you on that as long as the movie is is a good story and mm-hmm. is competent most of the time. You know, like as long as you're telling the story and it's and it looks competent, um, you can get away with a little bit of that at least at first. I mean, at least especially if you're making it yourself. And I think I think passionately told too is yeah. a big thing too. It's like. You can tell when you're watching something if it's if it's somebody just trying to cash in, trying to grab a quick buck, somebody just just doing an homage to some splatter thing that they've seen, or if someone just really genuinely is putting themselves out there. And I will give anything a pass if I can see the passion in it. Now, was there a lot of ad lib on the set? You know, it's funny. I get that a lot. And the script is so we cast when we cast Adam. Adam was the theatrically trained actor so it was a little bit harder to get him to come out of his shell so basically what you see in every scene is almost completely as scripted but then i as the director being in the scene would let the let the scenes run longer we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show and I would start trying to throw him off at the end. So most of the ad libs will come from tags at the end of the scenes as written. Cause once we would get, once I would know in my mind that we were reaching the end of the scripted portion that Adam knew, I would kind of throw in a curveball and see if he would follow me. So there are definitely, definitely some ad libs in there and some goofy kind of asides. But for the most part, that is a, that is a written, that is a written movie. I'm just so natural. You can't even tell. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's mind-blowing. <laughs> no, all the little weird things like, um, you know, fuck you, sir, fuck you to death at the end, uh, you know, the scene that that's a tag. Um, there's a scene where, where we're playing catch and I just do a weird dancing like, boo doo boo doo boo boo That was a whole dialogue scene uh, about like, we'll start our own like place and we'll, we'll let people in there and we'll decide who gets to, and it just was coming off really stilted because we were playing catch. And so I just, I just said, screw it, I'm just going to do a weird song and dance, and then that was what we used instead. One of the things that I think syncs films, and one of the things that you guys do really well, is everything's very, it feels very natural. And one of the problems that I have with a lot of the things that are coming out now is the acting just, you know, that that's like the first thing you notice, is just people reading lines. You don't really feel like a scene is, is actually taking place. Well, I mean, it obviously all starts at casting. I mean, you got to get somebody who can do it 
right off the bat. You got to know they can do it. But it's also about letting the actors, you know, feel out their feel their way through the scene. You know, I didn't get to do that much of it on this because it was our first time and and, um, you know, and I was in the scenes. But there's a part about it that's if you put an actor in a box and you tell them that they can't go here, here or here and it has to be like this, this or that, then they're going to – you're going to stifle their their instrument, their one thing that they have, which is trying to feel confident enough to fail, n- not be embarrassed to try something crazy. And you know, there's something about kind of going through the scene before you shoot and letting the, the actor go where they naturally would want to be and then framing your shot around that. Um, is is an easier way to get them to feel comfortable doing something that they would naturally do. Yeah, I would say that like the the wide shots in the battery were extremely helpful to the fact that like they they had a ton of room to move around. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, like there's just something for me personally. Um, when you when you look at like the digital video, because even like the five D, it's great, but it's still video. Um, super duper close-ups of people, uh, just feel soap opera-ish. Mm-hmm. So like even just like shooting wider like that makes it feel more cinematic, which in turn actually helps their performance. Like it, there's just something about like those, those ultra macro close-ups where you can see every pore on their face that makes it feel more like you're watching a movie and that like, like you can see the acting because it's, you're right up in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, those are necessary for a certain, if you're going for a certain style. But I would also say that even though I said the script is, you know, this movie's pretty scripted, I made very clear from the get go that it, I'm not precious about my words. Uh, that's another way to, that, that's, that's a surefire way to get a stilted performance as if an actor doesn't, can't feel the line the way it feels natural coming out of their mouth. And yet they feel like they're, they're tied to that, that verbatim. Uh, so just whatever way feel, I mean, I was literally reading a script last night for a role I'm going to do. And as I was reading it, I was changing words in the moment and then writing those words down on the script because the way it's written didn't sound natural. I couldn't quite make it flow in a natural way. But if I just tweak this word, change that word, then suddenly it starts to come out more naturally, you know, in the way that I've, I've analyzed that but character. You also weren't, you weren't like precious about actions at all either. So it's like, that that'd be the other thing. Like, like we didn't really, we weren't precious about locations or actions. We'd be like, you know what, this location's not working out. Let's let's move over to this location and um, let's. Uh, hey, maybe they're playing catch in this scene where they weren't playing catch, or maybe they're doing this in this scene. Yeah, it certainly works for a certain kind of movie. The the more, I think, just the more freedom you can give an actor to feel like they can move about, find the character, find the character's gait and rhythm, and and feel their way through the set. Um, then you're just going to get, it's just going to get better. The more, the more they feel natural and lived in, in the moment, the, the more natural performance you're going to get. You know, it reminded me a lot of, uh, Jim Jaramouche. I don't yeah, know if you guys have ever Absolutely. That. Well, thank yeah. you very much. That's, a, that's a good compliment. <laughs> yeah. I just, you just lived in is what I always go for. I mean, yeah. I always say that I, I will tweak the dialogue until it, until I can read it where it doesn't feel like it's being re- read anymore. And then I'll say, mm-hmm. throw it all out if it doesn't work for you just just get you know the point of the scene right you know the the intent of the scene and then just get there any way that feels right and and if you have actors who are quick on their feet 
if one actor goes a certain way to try to get to the same point in a different way, then the other actor will follow and let them follow. And then if that doesn't work in the editing room, throw it out. Because <laughs> we did a lot of that too. Right. Were you working with a lot of non-actors? I mean, I, I assume most of the zombies were just friends, right? Yeah, all the zombies were non-actors. Unfortunately, that's, you know, they're not only were they non-actors, but they were young. We get that a lot that, uh, well, all the zombies in this movie are the same age as the, uh, <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah, we should have cast a more diverse, uh, set of, uh, extra zombies. But like I said, we didn't do good enough pre-production. So that goes back to that. Right. Well, talking about for a second about the technical aspects, I want to talk to Christian for a second about, um, you know, in terms of the way you approach this, um, I assume most of it's natural light. Can you talk about kind of the, the, um, what you were using. I know you were with the 5D Mark II and a, you said a Carl Zeiss lens. Can you talk uh, a little yeah. bit about how you approach that? Uh, the craziest thing about the movie was that we knew that the last third of it takes place in the back of a station wagon. So uh, we needed a super wide lens. Um, so I ended up renting a Zeiss 21 millimeter that uh, on the full frame 5D – um, that ended up kind of creating the whole look for the movie because it was such a better lens than any that I had that uh, I tried to use it as often as possible. So then you you know we already knew we wanted to shoot super wide, but then shooting with the twenty one millimeter uh, just really really opened it up even further. So much so in fact that we we actually um, we didn't shoot. Uh, with the intention of having the movie be 235 mm -hmm. uh, we actually cropped it in post uh, as an afterthought. Like it was just that we realized, wow, these, these shots are so wide and they looked much better cropped. Um, and it, it once again, like helped with the film look that we were trying to achieve. Um, so yeah, no, as far as lighting, I just had a, like a $50 LED light that was battery operated because we were in the woods. We had no power. Um, so it was only used in a couple scenes. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, the, I mean, obviously the most important thing I had was one of those variable ND filters because so much of it was shot outside in sunlight. Um, and that's the one thing that I notice whenever I get sent something now, someone's like, hey, can you review this? Can you review this? Their shutter speed is Oh, like as first time filmmaker, the shutter speed is all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it, you got that saving private Ryan look from have, shooting at a high shutter speed. Um, so other than that, we, I didn't really have much equipment. I didn't even have a fluid video head on, on the battery. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. I had an $80 shoulder rig from Optica. Uh, -huh. oh yeah. That was, that was, uh, that was it. I had a plastic tripod, uh, that I bought at Best Buy. So, uh, yeah, no, I was unprepared, but, you know, we, we wanted most of the shots to be static. So, you know, I didn't think I needed a fluid video head and all those other things. And, uh, we didn't quite have the budget. So, yeah. So what, what were the major things that if you could go back in time, you think would have made things a lot easier for you? A steady cam. Absolutely. <laughs> because we had discussed it, everything's going to be stationary but then, you know, you start making the movie and it's like, oh, well, just, you know, follow along. We're going to walk down this hill over these rocks and, you know, just walk behind us and that kind of stuff. I mean, I, my, I, my ass was saved in post by uh, Premiere's warp stabilizer. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's not something you want to rely on. 
Um, especially like, you know, it has artifacts and so on that I can see. Um, but we had to do it cause we didn't have a, a steady cam. Although like on the last day of the shoot, one of the producers was like, I got a steady cam in my trunk <laughs> and I, I wanted to stab him. I absolutely wanted to stab him. And I would say just, uh, you know, there are certain things about the fact that we didn't get to, we, we didn't really know how to plan a, a shoot schedule. So there were some, there were some days where we were just overloaded with things we had to get. I mean, when we had two, the only other two actors in the movie, uh, Alano, Brian and Niels Bala, they, 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 we had them scheduled on the same day because they were both coming from New York. And that's 14 pages of dialogue. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show, you know, and then it's raining and then it's, you know, the night is approaching and it's just one of those things where you start to feel, you don't want to feel like you're losing control of your set when you have actors there. And, and once the elements get involved, it's just like, we should never have scheduled both of those actors on the same day, that many pages in one day, but we just had no idea how to schedule a film and we, we had such a little amount of time to do it. So yeah. a backup audio recorder would have helped on that day because our audio recorder fried. Um, and we had no other option to record audio and, uh, we waited two hours to get one and then finally gave up and recorded using the mono mic on the SLR. Okay. So yeah, that would have, I mean, we, we would have not just saved the audio quality of that scene, but we would have saved the two hours while we were waiting for someone with a video camera to come that had XLR inputs. Right. But well, it's an, another thing that you guys did that's, you know, a lot of indie filmmakers forget about is you hired a guy to be your 100% sound guy, you know, and that makes a big difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was, you know, that's the, you know, I think throughout our little weird uh, troupe of filmmakers since, you know, since we've been kids, we've all kind of had our own specialty, but none of us have ever been sound guys. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that is a very specialized uh, area to go into. So when I was, the one thing I did do right in pre-production was I put an ad out and I, for a sound guy and I said, look, I got a little bit of scratch to give you and I can give you a little back end in the movie. Um, but you've got to stay with us the entire time. You can't go home. I can't be wondering where you are, uh, you know, every day when, when it's time for call, you're just going to be a part of the crew and you're going to be there. And this guy responded and he was like, that sounds cool. <laughs> and so I met this guy for a couple pints and, uh, we ended up arguing over the merits of baseball and hockey for about two and a half hours. And, uh, you know, he's a sound guy now, but he used to be like a roadie. So he's used to like living in a van with musicians and stuff. So he just, I mean, day one, he was there, he was sleeping on the couch in the cabins with us, you know, beers at night. He was, you know, doing everything that a grip would do that a, a PA would do. And he was doing sound. So he was invaluable. So if you can get yourself, you know, and especially in a small crew, uh, people are going to have to wear many hats. So get a guy who can do sound and blackout windows if he needs to. <laughs> So what would you say was the hardest aside from, well, let me ask you about the scheduling. What, if you could go back and possibly what you, you did for, um, techs, we'll talk about that in a second, but what, um, when you're scheduling and everything, what are the, is there a specific tool that you're using now that you didn't have then or something that you're doing now to schedule things out? We still have not scheduled a movie traditionally. <laughs> or you would like to in the future? Uh, yeah. Well, I would love to just get a good line producer and do it. <laughs> they can do it themselves. <laughs> okay. Um, 
No, it's it's just one of those areas that I just ha- we haven't had to. I mean, Texas, you will see, was not uh, very well planned in itself either. So we didn't learn a lot from our first effort. But uh, no, but there's little things that are obvious. Like when you look back, like okay, you can't have forty or fifty extras standing outside for twelve hours a day, two days back to back. You got to feed them. You've got to keep them occupied. And uh, there's a way to break that up, but then you realize that you can only have the, cer- the certain location where those extras can be for one or two days. Then you start running into to issues that we just didn't really concern ourselves with. I mean, there's a moment in the movie where where Mickey puts uh, blankets all over the windows in the car because he doesn't want to see the zombies' faces anymore. Um, and luckily. You know, story-wise, you can you can justify that because Mickey just can't deal with the situation. But in reality, we realized after that first day of shooting with all those extras that if we have these extras staring in the windows for the entire thirty-five minute third act that these these characters are in the car, you're going to start to see them get bored. You're going to start to see the, the zombies looking at the camera. You're gonna <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna invite the audience to start looking at the zombies rather than right. focusing on the characters. But it was in fact just because we couldn't we couldn't afford to have them out there all that time. So we went back after the first day, brainstormed, just came up with that blanket idea and then moved the car into a garage, into a controlled setting, put a sun lamp out the window and had one person shake it and then just added the zombie sounds at the end. And that worked fine. That's one of those creative decisions I'm really proud of. But it was one that we might not have had to run into if we had uh, you know, knew how to schedule a movie. What was the hardest day on the set? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was the day where the sound broke. I mean, that was the day I, I okay. quit the movie before the sound broke. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I didn't know about that. That was no, a bad yeah. day. I quit on text too. I think. Um, I quit. <laughs> I quit the movie. Yeah, you're not. Uh, doing it's kind it of a right. tradition at this. point. You're not doing it right if someone doesn't quit. Yeah, that means it's not hard. That means you're not struggling. We were trying to make a squib, and it was failing, and it was an it was a disaster. That was the day that we had the two actors come in uh, from out of town. There's this. I get shot in the legs. We were trying to make a squib out of nothing, out of blood and a condom and like a firecracker. Uh, It was raining. You were running out of time. You know, tensions were high. The sound broke. We ran out of light. It was just the most everything that could go wrong. Went wrong. Uh, I mean, if you watch the documentary, you'll see it's just once that day is mentioned, it did everyone's size. It was a rough day. Well, I think it's helpful for other filmmakers to realize, you know, that it, it is such a difficult process because, I mean, you know, I think everybody who makes an indie film that doesn't have much of a budget has probably gone through the same thing. And a lot of people quit. You know, a lot of people never make their film. Yeah, no, that's unfortunate too because it's the most rewarding and most fun I've ever had and it's also, you know, the most stressful and crazy, but th- those two things go hand in hand. And there's nothing like, you know, sitting down with other filmmakers and chewing the fat and listening to them talk about their their nightmare moments on set because you then you can relate. Oh yeah, gosh, that's just like when the wasp nest was stuck in the car door and the lawn mowing people came all on the same day on the first day of shooting. It's just like, <laughs> what is happening here? You know, it's, but it's, but that's kind of one of those badges of honor you wear after you made a, you know, an indie movie on your own. In terms of the, um, the music, can we talk for a second about that and how you were able to get such a great soundtrack? Absolutely. And thank you. Um, 
No, you know, it started as um, I'm a huge fan of Rock Plaza Central, this band Rock Plaza Central. I've loved them for years. I used to be a big fan and I would go to all their shows. And when we cut together a location scouting video before we'd ever ever made the movie, we used one of their songs and we kind of put it up on Twitter for people to see what we were going to do. And the lead singer of the band contacted us and said, hey, that looks cool. Are you guys going to use our music in the movie as well? Which had never even occurred to us that that would be a possibility. Um and he was really kind and put us in touch with his label and they were super – I mean they gave us the rights to the songs for literally nothing. Like I think it was like 500 bucks forever worldwide. Wow. That's um, great. That is great. And even better than that, it's like he put us in touch with the band The Parlor who has a couple songs in the movie and they just gave us free reign of, of all their songs for nothing. Um, and the same thing happened with – you know, Wise Blood, who does the electronica in the movie, electronic songs in the movie. He, uh, Adam kind of knew him from college, so he gave us uh, his music. Um, Sun Hotel and El Cantador were some Florida bands that Christian knew from uh, the local scene down here. He talked to them, and they let us use their music. You know, you hear a lot of people. I mean, one of the most amazing things is no matter where I've gone with this movie, all over the world, whatever language, people always, always ask about the music. And that's so rewarding because there's something that's to be said about, you know, artists helping other artists out and it was such a beautiful thing for them to do to let us use their music and what's been lovely is how often those bands have contacted us and said hey you know once the movie came out we saw a huge uptick in downloads and sales on our, on our music and stuff so it's just a it's one of those things where you know look we can't give you much up front but you know if our movie does well you'll do well it's a, you know it's a symbiotic relationship and that was uh, amazing and now we're like great friends with Chris Eaton from Rock Plaza Central. And that's, it's such a weird thing to go from being a fan of somebody and like I shook his hand one time at a show to now he'll like <laughs> call me up and say, Hey, I got this idea for a novel. Like, what do you think about this? And just talk to him about it. And you're like, that's so crazy. You know, it's so crazy to go from fan to, to peer and collaborator. But you haven't told him that you were like that, though. I mean, he's not like, hey, oh, man, I want to shake my hand again. I 100% <laughs> told him. I mean, there was literally a show where I was so into it. I was having such a good time that uh, they like handed the microphone to me in the crowd to like hold up to the trombone player because I was just, I just wouldn't stop. And then another show, they were like, hey, man, we saw you out there like dancing up a storm like a crazy person. Like, just thanks. I'm like, it's, it's cool that you're like getting into the musical. And I was just like, they talked to me. <laughs> and now it's like I'm, I'm going to their house and like, you know, having barbecue with their kids and stuff. It's so wild. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. As far as the DVDs and stuff like that and reproduction of their songs, do you guys have to have like contracts and things like that that were worked out? Just uh, can you give me an idea of how that all kind of worked out? Just well, so most of the bands, most of the bands is um, were off label and mm -hmm. they gave, they gave us like the rights to do anything with their music in the movie. Okay. Um, uh, including, I mean, Rock Plaza Central gave us those rights and then, but then they were like, oh, we forgot we're in Canada. No, we have a label in the U.S. Um, so we, we did have to get in contact with their label, but their label basically gave us this, the rights to use the songs. Um, yeah, you definitely have to get, you know, releases signed. Uh, you have to get all the bands to sign off. But once you do, once you get into deliverables, if you, if you have a distribution deal, you've got to get all the, um, the, the contracts squared away with those artists. But I mean, I can remember, I think one of the bands from Florida was happened to be playing in New York City 
and Adam, uh, you know, who plays Mickey, our producer, one of our producers, he was like, what, they're in the city right now? And he just like hoofed it down to where they were playing a show and like confronted them. He's like, hey, can you sign this release for that song that's in our movie? It's just like, uh, you just gotta, you gotta get it all squared away. Deliverables is a, <laughs> is a, is an annoying, annoying part of what should be one of the most amazing p- parts of the process, which is, hey, we're gonna distribute your movie. Cool. What do we need to give you? Oh, everything that's ever been made in the world. We have to give you. Oh, <laughs> God, no. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, in general, I mean, I mean, we didn't really have to pay for the songs. I mean, we I think even the the, the record label deferred the payment until after the battery was like bringing in money from the distribution. So it was it was pretty, pretty awesome, actually. Now, can you talk a little bit about your post-production process? I just want to give people a full view of the whole thing and kind of how how you went from um Taking all, you know, even the minutia of taking the card out of the camera and did you do backups? Did you, you know, oh. how, how did post-production work? Can you talk about that? Oh, I can talk about on the battery. Um, we had, uh, I, I'll tell you, we had two hard drives on set. Uh, they would, I would, I would take the cards out every day when we got back to, uh, we, we had these little cabins that we were staying in. Um, I would take the card out, put it off onto the two hard drives. Then I would move one of the hard drives into one the other cabin just in case one of the cabins got broken into because we had all this film camera equipment coming in and out. Uh, so so or it burned down. Who knows? You know. So I we had we had two separate hard drives every day. Um, and then after that, uh, post production kind of took like two whole years. I mean, it was off and off. <laughs> I mean, it well, was we never nightmare. just like jumped into it all at once because uh, we didn't have time because we had day jobs. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I mean, my sister um, and Michael Katzman edited the movie, um, and then after that, uh, our friend Ryan Winford did the score. But everything else then after that was done by me. Um, so like I did the sound design and the score mixing and the color grading, and then. You know, like the final kind of tweaking to the edit and all that stuff, the deliverables. Um, and that, that just was like, it's just never done. We would play a film festival and I'd come back and be like, oh, I got to fix that color in that scene. I got to fix the sound in that scene. But uh, like I said, I mean, we are, we are lucky in that you really are lucky if you have people who can wear many hats. Cause it's, you know, our editors are, you know, they, they put together a rough cut for us. And then until I could come down and we could really sit there and hone the edit. Um, and then, but then they also just went off on their own and did like hundreds of Foley, uh, Foley sounds for, for the movie, which we didn't even, you know, think how are we going to get to Foley? They just went off and did that. Christian's, you know, going into his garage and like recording himself slapping the car like a million different times so he can create that soundscape for all the zombies, like slapping their hands up against the windows. So it's like everybody's doing, you know, jobs they don't know. I remember one thing Christian wanted was somebody to do sound design. And I met a guy and Christian flew to New York. He flies to New York to meet this guy. And the guy like who's basically like an intern somewhere uh, and he thinks he's a hot shot tells us that the movie can't be can't, – it can't be done in the yeah. state it's in. He said He said we didn't have enough Foley. We had a thousand pieces of Foley in the movie. And he said we needed more Foley. Which means he didn't even notice it was Foley, which is good. Yeah, and it was – and I'm like, we're a $6,000 movie. We have a 1,000 pieces of Foley in here. And he's saying I can't mix it until there's more Foley. And, and so Christian goes out. I, Christian goes outside for a cigarette 
I walk outside and I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? And he's like, fuck it. I'll learn to do it myself. <laughs> and, then it. and then he went home and just watched online tutorials and, and did the sound design himself. Yeah. So hopefully – from here on out, what we're hoping is that Christian doesn't have to wear as many hats because I could see him dying. His hair's graying. He's freaking out because I, I'm the writer, director, actor guy who gets to do all the fun stuff. And he's just like, ah, I'm coloring the same scene for a year. I Because I mean, we added we added editor. Um, I, like we well, Jeremy and I co-edited the new movie. Mm-hmm. And but I also did the sound recording on the new movie on set. Uh, so like we, I was just adding jobs like, and this one, it, it maybe you should just long. say the things that you didn't do in the credits. Yeah, like- exactly. This one, I mean, <laughs> I mean, text Montana, it, all the tech was done by me. The only, uh, the only thing that wasn't was, uh, the score was done by Ryan again. Um, but I recorded the score with him. So, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's just nuts. Now, was there any, when you were learning how to do that, were you just going on YouTube or was there any, just for people who might want to. Take on something like that. Yeah. God I mean, help them. I mean, anything uh, like because I, I mean, even my, my other job, I do photography and design. Um, there's a site called Lynda.com, L-Y-N. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that site, I, I've learned how to do a million things on that site. And it's pretty great because you could just sign up for $20, like crunch for a whole month and then cancel your subscription. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but then sign up again when you need a refresher. Yeah. That's sad because that's I've I've done that before. Yeah, I'm like oh, I want to take this class, but I don't want to I don't want to get a membership. So and you can do a two week free trial too. Yeah. Right. Did you uh, take Deke McClellan's class? Uh I think Deke is kind of the guru over there because I, I teach Photoshop. It's I'm I'm also a graphic designer, but um you know it's it's funny because I I learned Deke was the guy that basically taught me Photoshop back in like. 98 or something like that but it came the it used to lynda.com used to also be i think total training i think they merged or something ah. and total training used to you would get like 20 vhs cassettes of <laughs> how to learn photoshop but i remember that arriving one day and i was just like so excited to get the total training series anyway sorry i'm, no, I'm off topic right that's that's, <laughs> that's totally you know like i'm sure i'm like deke i would i would probably recognize him if i saw him like oh yeah oh yeah yeah well, i've seen that guy a million times because yeah. I mean, I've watched all every Adobe program I've watched on there because I use pretty much every Adobe program in different jobs. And I would say my advice uh, for all of that is to get yourself a Christian, because <laughs> uh, because I, I just want to go right. I don't want to do that shit. We're going to give Christian's uh, email address and home address at the end of this, so everybody can oh, get in touch no. with them. No, I said get yourself a Christian, not yeah, mine. I don't. My, <laughs> oh, sorry. I need another Jeremy. <laughs> Everyone needs another Christian, but no one needs another Jeremy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, and and color grading. Can you talk about that for a second? Because uh, I mean, yeah, you were doing that in sure, DaVinci Resolve. Right in here and uh, <laughs> defer to Christian. <laughs> yeah, you don't know anything about that. Um, actually, it, this is crazy. Now, um, on the battery, I uh, I I was using just the built-in color corrector stuff in Premiere. Um. I uh, I didn't switch to Resolve until Tex Montana. And that's why I'm still learning Resolve because it's a, it's just kind of a whole mind fuck for me. Um, but yeah, no, the battery was done with like the fast color corrector and all these other Premiere tools. Um, and then I think towards the end, 
uh, colorista, um, mm-hmm. which, but that was already when I was like, like after we had premiered the movie, uh, I was going back and fixing some things. But then the, the major thing I did on the battery was, um, besides I just, I was color grading it to be really low contrast. I was always bringing up the blacks because I felt like when you have these crushed blacks and these super, super whites, basically, um, it's, it's stuff that really you can only do with video. Um, and film didn't really have that because even, you know, film, film in a theater had just light going through it. So to me, I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ever have true black in the battery. Um, so it was always kind of raised up to like around even like 10 IRE. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I know, no, we still so, like the but the screen. most important thing I did on the battery was I, uh, I got, I bought this film grain loop from a company called Gorilla Grain and it was like $50 for a real scan of film grain. And I mm-hmm. put it over top of that because uh, over the, the battery, because not only did it make it look more like film, but it also helped with, I had been doing a lot of noise reduction uh, from shooting high ISO at night. Um, so that, you know, when you use, I, I was using neat video for noise reduction. And, um, when you do that, like things start to look plasticky and fake and the, uh, film grain really kind of gets rid of that plastic look. Um, but now that I shoot with the C100, I'm using DaVinci Resolve because there's just so much more color information there. Right. So, You're shooting ProRes. Uh, yeah, I'm shooting into the, a ProRes uh, Ninja Atomos Ninja Two recorder. Okay, and it's so it's so much more. Co- I mean, it's like night and day from the battery. <laughs> so I say, like Tex Montana will survive is a found footage movie. Um, yet on a technical level, it's way way more. It's way better looking than the battery is. Okay. I don't want to put Jeremy to sleep over there. So let's talk about. Are you kidding uh, me? I have I have recordings of Christian talking tech, and I just listen to it as my lullaby. <laughs> yeah, I've just heard it a thousand times. But people do need to know this shit. As you were making the film, were you thinking about distribution? Were you concerned with trying to build up social awareness of the? Uh, you know, what was your idea towards the marketing? Uh, you know, we didn't really have one. Honestly, I think that a lot of times, speaking of things that could derail your uh, your your production, um, putting a cart before the horse is one of the the main issues too. I, I mean, I don't I, I, people you, you'll they'll spend a month making a poster for a movie they haven't even considered getting out there and actually making. So it was really just about one thing at a time, right? Let's let's make a movie first. Let's see if we've got a movie first, and then okay, well let's see how we can get people to see it. Um, and then it became. You know, the festival circuit, trying to get into festivals. Um, and then, you know, getting a trailer cut together that, that's, that's interesting enough to where you might get some people a little bit of buzz about it, get it to some websites that traffic in those things and just start to build an awareness. But it really wasn't until the festival, um, the festival circuit kind of kicked up that we started building an online presence and then going to those festivals and glad handing and, and meeting people and talking to them. Uh, is really the only way you're going to get get noticed in 
you know, because there's so many people making movies now. The only way you're going to rise to the top is is to get into festivals, get seen, be there, meet as many people as possible, be nice, be humble, have drinks with them, uh, make yourself available. What were some of the more important festivals for the film in terms of like what you guys connections and things like that or what were the most fun ones? Um, the fun ones are – there's so many fun ones. I mean the first the first one we got into was the Telluride Horror Show uh, in Colorado, which was amazing. That was our world premiere and we were super excited about that. And then after that, we didn't get into anything for months. I mean it got really demoralizing. You start throwing $50 a pop at these festivals and not hearing anything and it's like you're chucking money into a hole and you have no idea what's going on. Um, and then out of the blue, um, we got an email from Imagine uh, in Amsterdam which is a big genre festival that's been going on out there for about 25 years. Uh, and we got into that. And then because they are a part of um, kind of a genre, a Europe, like an international genre, like coalition almost of film festivals, other film festivals that were in that same union started uh, asking for the movie. So there's this weird thing that happens where at first you're spending a lot of money to get to submit to festivals and not hearing anything. Then you get into one and then suddenly other festivals know that that's happening and they start saying they're going to waive their submission fee. And then at some point, not only do they waive the submission fee, they just invite you to screen their period. And then at some point, they start flying you out and they start paying you screening fees to show your movie. So it's this really weird process where if you're lucky enough to to catch a little bit of fire on the festival circuit – you can go from spending money to making money uh, and, and getting to see the world. So Imagine definitely was what kickstarted that. Um, and then from there we went to – we won the Audience Award there, which has been won by like Silence of the Lambs and uh, you know The Raid and Donnie Darko and From Dust Till Dawn, all these like great big genre movies. And we won that award somehow and I know that's just because – we were there. We were there for a week. We were having beers with people. We were shaking hands. We do lively Q and A's and we, you know, and it's, it's part of the politics of, of building an audience and hoping that they'll follow you to your next project. It's just saying, I know I'm living in a dream right now and I'm, I want to be respectful and humble of the entire process. So it's, um, that was really fun. Then we went to Dead by Dawn in Scotland and won the audience award there. And then we went to Brazil and Mexico City. Um, Fantasia was a sold-out crowd, even though we were already released in the United States, which was kind of a hang-up. They weren't sure if they could play it. Uh, they decided to take a chance on us anyway, and it was completely sold out. There was still a line outside when they shut the doors. We ended up giving up our own seats uh, so some more people could squeeze in. Um, just just a really amazing process to, to go all over the world, going down to Brazil and – and, uh, you know, we, we, we were the opening night film at Macabro, Mexico City, like 500 people in the theater, like red carpet and flashbulbs. And, but wow. these things really, like, they help you build traction. And, 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 and now to see on, on this Kickstarter campaign, how many of those people from all over the world have kicked in that we don't even know is incredible. And that's, that's just from, from not taking your audience for granted. And it, of course, it helps that, you know, the, the thing I said at the beginning of this whole process was if we do at least come close to what I'm, what I'm trying to do here, which is make this interesting, you know, artsy, character driven zombie movie, the, the gatekeepers of the indie horror world will respond to it. And then, you know, to get people like Ain't It Cool News and Bloody Disgusting and Fangoria and Dread Central, all these people to write really positive things about the movie just really helped helped push it along. Were you doing anything or was it just like once you got the first festival? What was it? Imagine? Imagine, yeah. 
once you got that, all these things just started happening without a whole lot of effort from you guys, or were you still like out there pushing it and promoting it? I mean, we were always pushing it in our way, you know, through Twitter, and you send a couple emails here and here and there. But it's amazing how many people find it on their own. You can you can try morning, noon, and night to get press for something and never hear a word. And then as soon as something happens, it just – you can't stop it. It's a, it. It just takes off on its own. It really is crazy. I mean it's like the Catch-22 about you know getting an agent. Like you can't get an agent unless an agent comes looking for you and by then you need an agent. It's just one of those weird things where it's just you, – you, you're not going to get press until the press hears about you, until they can't ignore you anymore. Right. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things we we talk about with our marketing, the film marketing program is the idea that you need to be, you know, if you go to some, you need to be the person that's already kind of in front of like horror fans or zombie fans, you know. So if you're getting on Bloody Disgusting or Fangoria or whatever, there's no way you're gonna you could do that on your own, you know. Those people already have those that fan base, right? Well, there's another. Well, there are little things too, right? So even though we want this movie to stand on its own as a film. It definitely helped that we were able to every time we were talking about it at a Q and A or whatever to say that we made it for six thousand dollars because it was the truth. But it's also it's a it's a clear marketing hook, right? People are going to write about that. Um, so it was one of those things where we actually talked about like, do we really want to talk about the budget for this movie or do we want to just let it have let it exist on its own merits? But at some point it was just like, you know what? It's too it's too good of a of a of a marketing hook. And The Walking Dead helped as well, which the movie I mean, the movie was conceived before The Walking Dead premiered, but mm-hmm. that oh, yeah. was ma- I mean, that was major. Yeah, there's little things like that. And um, what was I just gonna say? Um, I don't know. I'm glad I threw you off. Thanks, thanks, Christian. Thanks for <laughs> popping in there and talking Damn about it, Walking man. Dead. <laughs> well, I'm saying that zombies zombies don't hurt, it, but we didn't. We were not planning on that at all. In fact, it might have actually like stunted the movie if if zombies were as big as they are now. I don't oh know no! Well, I mean, even even when it came out, I you know I heard zombie fatigue, zombie fatigue all over the place, and it was like, oh boy, here we go. I mean, it got to the point where I, when I told people I made a movie, I would say, oh yeah, I made this little like artsy horror movie. I wouldn't say the zombie word unless I was pressed because it's just you know you hear so many people just completely shut down when when they hear zombie, and that's just annoying. That always annoys me. I always said like nothing is worn out if someone makes a good one. I mean, you can make 500 vampire movies and be sick of them all, but as soon as someone makes a good one, it's like, oh, the return of the vampire film. It's no, it's just because someone made a good one again. It really is, you know, when you're making a zombie film, it's never about the zombies. It's always about the human, you know. I mean, Walking Dead is not about zombies at all. It's, it's a about soap the human. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. No, and that's the way it should be. Right? I mean, it got to the point where I was even considering very briefly when it was, you know, it was difficult for us to try to get, you know, makeup for for the movie. I was like, you know what? Let's just put all of the zombies in t-shirts with a Z on it, and then don't don't even don't even <laughs> deal with the the zombie makeup. Just to prove that this is more about the characters than the zombies. So just that'll really piss people off and be weird. But that was a little maybe a little too esoteric. So okay, let's talk about distribution. No. Can you discuss the distribution aspect of the battery. <clears throat> uh yeah. <laughs> uh whew. okay. Um no. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, it's um 
Well, so, you know, after we got to that first festival, Telluride Horror, we were approached by Film Buff about the, um, the digital rights, um, the world no relation, the worldwide digital rights. Okay. And, and, you know, like I said, between Telluride and Imagine, we didn't have a lot going on. It didn't seem, it felt like, okay, that was it. That was our, um, we're winding down now. So let's, let's do this. Let's, let's get on this train. And, you know, of course, then the movie takes off and you start to wonder, oh boy. And we got approached by a lot of people saying, oh, you've already given away your, your worldwide digital rights. Are you crazy? And, you know, that's a lesson you got to learn is that you got to, I mean, it's a hard lesson to learn if you've never done it. The business side is so difficult to navigate uh, if you're just coming into it. I think far more difficult to navigate than actually making a movie because every time you do something, someone tells you you made the wrong decision. But through having that, uh, at some point we were able to uh, get our international rights back from them because we had, we, we realized that they weren't really interested in selling the international rights. They were really more focused on getting the movie out in, in America. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we met a woman named Annick uh, Mannert who saw the film, at um at a festival in France and she has been just an incredible champion of this movie from the moment she saw it she actually flew to Germany while we were there uh and had brunch with us and has just been working tirelessly to get us into festivals and she uh works with Raven Banner in, in Canada who's an international sales agent and got them to take the movie on and they were able to go out and sell it to territories across the world and then uh, speaking of getting a champion, you know, AJ Bowen, the actor, he, when he saw the movie, he didn't stop talking about it at all. And he would go on podcasts and mention it. And he would mention it to the point where the hosts of those podcasts started, they're like, all right, we got to watch this movie. This guy won't shut up about the battery. And then they watched it and then they wouldn't stop talking about it. And it just so happened that they, they, they had frequent guests on, uh, who run Scream Factory and Shout Factory. And because they talked about it so much, finally Scream Factory was like, all right, let's see what this movie that these guys won't shut up about is. And then we were able to get uh, a DVD uh, and Blu-ray deal from Scream Factory, which is just – I mean that was – I think we grew two feet tall. Uh, our, our heads couldn't fit <laughs> through the doors. I mean, it's just amazing because you're told right off the bat that you're not going to be able to get a physical a physical distribution deal if you've given away your digital rights. But – um you know, but those guys are make just make such beautiful physical you know things in a, in a in a digital world now that luckily they were able to just take a flyer on us and 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 we got to put this amazing Blu-ray out with this documentary which covers all the ground you're making us cover right now. <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding, but it is an, a fantastic documentary. You should really uh, I I I encourage everybody to to check it out if they can because we basically made that. Exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is my film school was watching DVD extras and listening to podcasts. And so we made a 90 minute feature length documentary that goes from those stupid short films we were making in high school all the way to the festival circuit on the battery. And it goes through every step of the process. We really wanted it to be where if somebody sees this and they're like on the cusp of thinking, can I make a movie or not? Then this would push them over and say, just go do it because it's going to be hard, but it's going to be amazing. Now, the documentary is only available with the DVD and the Blu-ray. Is that right? Uh, or is yeah, it? Yeah, for now, for now it is. It's only on the North American Blu-ray DVD release by Scream Factory. Um, but we're, we're looking into whether or not we can put it up online for free. Um, because I think it, it's promotion for the DVD and Blu-ray. Um, 
and it's like I, like we're saying it's, it's a really, really wonderful kind of thing for filmmakers. Um, but I'm we'll almost see. more proud of it than I am of the battery just because, <laughs> yeah. because if I had, you know, had seen something so thorough and, you know, so, so, so naked about the, you know, the ups and downs of the process, I would have been like, that's it. We're doing this thing. And that's, that's what we were hoping. And oh God, I, I worked on that documentary for like six months. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's like 10, 10 bucks for the DVD or something on Amazon. You, and you get that, that and the, and the movie and the commentaries and the outtakes and stuff like that. So there's a, and we really tried to pack it with as much, uh, if you want to make a movie, watch this stuff as you can. I don't even know where we started with that question. What was it? Distribution? Oh yeah. Oh, distribution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, yeah, I think that, I think what he was getting at was just that, um, you know, for first time, uh, movie or, or our first movie, um, there's just, there's a lot of like legal stuff and lawyers and expenses and so on that happen in distribution. So, you know, and, and on the battery, we had like 10 investors. So not a lot of that money trickles down to us in the end. Um, but uh, like just due to the system, like the whole, the whole system in general, it's not like, it's not like screen factory didn't pay well. They paid great. Um, it's just one of those things where you you have to do it's I wish there were I wish I could create a like a a list of things you need to do once you start to enter the distribution process of making a movie but it is literally so dense and there are so many possibilities you I almost feel like you just kind of have to read as much as you can and then wade in and then make a decision because the amount of 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 options that we had that we didn't know we were going to have when we made one decision that suddenly another avenue opened up later. If we hadn't done this, we could have done that. It's just, there's just no way to navigate it. And we try as hard as we can. We've had, you know, filmmakers email us and contact us and ask us about particular, you know, distribution companies or deals or what. And it's just like, man, if it feels right, do it. There's just no, you're going to learn from the process is the only way to, only way to really go about it. I mean, I'm sure someone out there has, can elucidate much more, uh, you know, with much better uh, clarity than I can on this part of the process. But it was easily the most difficult part of the entire process for us to navigate was the business side and the distribution side. I think you just kind of got to learn as you go. The thing that's interesting, you know, listening to that is when you say it's a $6,000 movie, I've heard people that work in independent film talk about just the deliverables costing more than that. Uh, well, uh, I mean, when it comes to distribution, a lot of the deliverable stuff was just like written off of uh, our payment. Okay. So, you know, it, that's like I think like maybe the entire first year of the release, I mean, like it just everything went to expenses. Um, so, yeah, we didn't have to pay for a lot of things up front. But um yeah, we had a, it, but I always say that the $6,000 is the production budget. That's what it cost us to get to the premiere at Telluride Horror Show. Okay. Um, and then we did have some business related expenses after that, but we already had deals on the table that we were ready to sign. Um, so, you know, like I, I know one for a fact was, um, what's called errors and emissions insurance. You know, 
Yeah, and that was yeah. like uh, that was like four thousand dollars that we had to pay, and I think Adam got a personal loan from his father or something, and he and you know, and then he got paid back eventually. Um, but we, you know, we had deals on the table at that time. We would have never paid for that if we didn't. Um, I mean, there are certain things you can do to make it make it easier to navigate. Like, just make sure you've got all your your uh, performance releases signed by your actors. Make sure that you've got a chain of title, you know, in order. There are things that you're going to I mean, just look up a list of the of, of the typical deliverables, and then there are certain, uh, you know, there are certain ones that you can check off before you even make the movie or while you're in pre-production that we just didn't even think about until we were done. But I'm pretty sure that as far as like the business expenses of the battery. Maybe had I think that plus creating an LLC for like two thousand um, dollars. I think those might have been the only ones that we paid up front, and then the rest were deducted later on through distribution companies and so on. And uh, not to say that that wasn't a lot; it was a lot. Um, it was just we didn't have to pay it up front. Yeah, when you get your uh, first uh, re- report of your residuals and you see that gigantic chunk that goes to expenses, you just go. Oh. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. That was like three months rent <laughs> or more. So, yeah, I, I just wanted – I kind of wanted to go into um, the things that Jeremy discussed in his article on <laughs> Movie Maker um, because I – you know, I, I it really is something that I think a lot of filmmakers don't talk about. And people don't want to, you know, first of all, people don't ever want to talk about pirating, you know, and what a big deal it is now and how easy it is for people just to download anything they want for free and how much that affects you guys in the, on the distribution side. And, and, you know, and can we talk about how that's affected the way that you, you know, your, your newest project? Yeah, I mean, I'll say because it's something I don't think he put in the article was that um like the day our movie was released, the piracy was – I mean within three hours of the iTunes release, the piracy was just insane. Um, but even like a year later, there was a day where um, some piracy group released a version of our movie and it was like the 30th torrent of our movie. Um, and there was 100,000 downloads of that torrent in 24 hours. Wow. Um, in that same 24 hours, we were selling the movie DRM free on our website for $5. In that same 24 hours, we sold two copies. We made $10. Um, and all of our other digital sales had kind of just slowed to a halt at that point. Uh, so it was like there were 100,000 stolen in one day a year after release. We make $10 that day. It's, uh, it's, it's the ratio that's insane. You know, like mm-hmm. piracy is kind of a way of life at this point. I get it. But the ratio should be far, far less. Like I would say there's got to be anywhere from 20 to 80 illegal downloads per every one real rental. Um, that's just way too high. Yeah, and those 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 are never going to translate one to one. You know, for you know, if everybody who pirated it bought it instead, well, that's never going to happen. That's just not the way it works. I think – it, I did touch on in the article that it is easy to vilify the piracy community because, yes, they're, they're they're causing a lot of issues in the movie business. I mean, where a five million dollar budget five years ago, you know, you could you could wrangle with, 
you know, pe- companies who fund those movies now are really, really hemming and hawing over a quarter million dollar budget because they know that the second that movie is released on demand, it's going to be pirated. And so the risks go go way higher. And so the budgets are driven way down. Less movies are made, which means less crew jobs. There's so many things that it affects that people don't know. And I think you're never – I think people tiptoe around the, the piracy issue because you're never going to get the pirates – the people who torrent on your side are the ones who believe that everything should be free and information is free and screw you and I don't care. You're never going to get those guys. But there is an interesting contingent of the piracy population who, number one, would download it if they could, if it were available in their territory. And there is something to be said about the fact that you know, the way that movies are distributed nowadays is not taking into account the fact that the world is completely connected. Everybody knows what's going on in the movie world everywhere in the world. And so, you know, I can, I can remember even myself, you know, years ago, hearing all about The Loved Ones. It was, it was an Australian horror movie, right? And it's just like you hear so many great things about it and you never know, when, when is this coming out here? And you just – you keep hearing people talk about it and you're like, am I ever going to get to see it? And I actually – I mean it ended up getting dumped in the US like four years later. But it's one of those things where it just seems crazy not not to hit on uh, – you know, hit on the audience when they're ready for it, when they want it. Um, so that's one part of the, of the of the piracy thing that needs to be taken care of. Another one is that I just genuinely feel that there is a certain amount of people out there, especially of, of a of certain age group, who absolutely have no idea the, the devastation it causes throughout the industry. They just movies are not what they used to be when I was a kid. You know, I, I would. You know, I begged to be taken down to the video store and I would stay in there for two hours. They were things that I knew were made and they were big and then you had to go and get them and you had to pay for them and sometimes you didn't like them. And that's part of the process. You you, you gamble a little bit with your money and maybe you see the greatest thing you've ever seen and maybe you see a turd. But that's part of the process. Now there's a generation that just simply thinks of them as little tiny thumbnail posters that you click on and then they play and that's it. And there's there's no – heft to the the process and the amount of people and time that goes into making these movies anymore and i think that is a that's just a re-education that needs to happen or it might not might not even be able to happen i just don't know if you can convince a generation that gets it for free why they shouldn't get it for free anymore uh, it's a, it's a real sticky prickly issue to bring up i think that another huge thing is just the fact that people aren't going to theaters anymore too and it it's like everything has become just digital files now and and we've gotten so far from the the days when you had to go to a theater and watch a film and then many many months later you would be able to rent a copy at your local video club and sometimes they would be they wouldn't have it you know it's th- that whole culture has disappeared oh it's completely gone and I, and i i love i miss it and yeah i mean even in you know the movie that changed my life that made me like super like aware that movies were made was Jurassic Park. That sounds might sound crazy, but that was the first time I started thinking I about Jurassic. Well, it's, it's one of the, I, I remember someone telling me, "Hey, the dinosaurs are made with computers." And my brain, my like little 12-year-old brain just went like, "What? Like that's not possible. What do you mean they're made with computers?" And suddenly I started thinking about the behind the scenes process of making a movie, and I cut my first lawn 
much to my father's chagrin because he'd been trying to get me to mow the lawn for years. I mowed my first lawn to get money to go see Jurassic Park because I saw it seven times in theater. And that movie didn't come out on VHS for over a year after it was in the theater. You know, it was just like waiting for this thing to come out so you can have it. And and those that that's just gone now. You know, the movie comes out. People go see it opening night, opening weekend, kind of fizzles out. And then 90 days later or less, you, you can download it or steal it or rent it online. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times, uh, you know, here it's like you'll see the movie will come out in like a torrent or something even before it comes to a theater. It's ridiculous, you know, and I've been trying – I've been making an effort to try and see everything in a theater now and it's so different. You know, the the concentration that you have and the way that you're affected by the movies. I mean even watching it on a a great big HD TV, it's just not the same. No, it's not. It's a whole different experience and and, and what's crazy is you're right. It's it's this communal thing that – I love it and more people should engage with. I was actually, my mother, you know, she's not a huge like cinema person, but I'm down in Florida and I, I get to see her for the first time in a while. And she, she'll always tell me she tried to watch this movie and she couldn't get into it because I know she's just sitting there distracted. She's got her phone. She's got Facebook. She's, and I took her to the movies for the first time in like 20 years. We saw a couple movies in the last couple weeks and to watch her sit there and fully focus on the movie and like follow it and be engaged with it because she knows she can't pick her phone up or leave. It's just like, Oh yeah. Yeah, that's why you go to the theater. You go to yeah. the theater to commit to the experience of, of letting a story wash over you, not not with your phone and not with going to the bathroom and getting up and going to the kitchen. It's just you're there. You're in it. Well, it depends on where you go too because I see – I mean it, it drives me nuts, but people that just bring out their cell phone in the middle of the movie. I mean I had to, I had to like yell at a guy the other day because he was just sitting there checking his Facebook in the middle of uh, something. I don't remember what – Star Wars. It's just it's it boggles my mind that <laughs> that the, with the amount of I mean it's it's clear at this point that it is a serious social faux pas and people still do it. Yeah, you know it's funny because I was listening to your interview on the um, the um, critics. What was it called? The the review podcast facing the critics uh, facing the critics facing the critics and your comments about well let me put it this way. One of the greatest experiences I ever had in a theater was watching dances with wolves. Oh, great. And I, I really love the fact that you were saying that how good that movie was and how people have kind of forgotten about it because I watched it recently and I, I didn't realize I was watching the, um, the director's cut, which mm-hmm. is like 12 hours long, <laughs> you know, yeah. cause I was, I was supposed to go to a friend's house later and I was like, yeah, I'm sitting here watching, uh, dances with wolves, but it's not it's not ending here. Uh, been on for the last four hours, and we're still not to the midpoint. Yeah. But it's such an amazing movie, and I don't I, I don't ever see having that kind of uh, experience again. I don't know, movies just aren't made like that anymore. No, they're not. And you know, that's a thing. That's another thing that people don't understand about the what piracy has done, right? You you, you want to know where those movies? I mean, Dances Wolves didn't cost that much money, but you want to know where those middle, those mid range budget movies have gone. Those adult movies, those grown up movies. I mean, when I was in the, you know in high school, I saw every single movie that came out. I can remember going and seeing Return to Paradise. Did you ever see that movie? That's um, a that's a Joaquin drama. Phoenix. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix, yeah. Vince Vaughn, Anne Heche. Yeah. It's a movie that time has completely forgotten, and yet it was a movie that came out on a Friday, and I went and saw it. You know what? I loved it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And it could it could never be released. No today. one would ever make that like thirty million dollar. 
you know, drama about yeah. like should they go back and like, take a guy out of a Malaysian prison? And the that movie was such a downer. <laughs> it was <laughs> really rough. But it's like, what's the budget of Bone Tomahawk? Like one point two or yeah, one point eight exactly. million dollars. In that movie, like uh, just like. 15 years ago would have been like a 15, 25 million dollar movie. Yeah. And in yeah. theaters, like everywhere. Yeah. It is strange, but, uh, you know, but, but that's the thing is like, so now because of that, because they need to milk every single dollar out of that opening weekend, that's why you're getting so many giant superhero movies. That's why you're getting sequels. That's why you're getting, because they have to curb every possible risk. They can't take a risk on some of these small movies. I mean, luckily there's, you know, people like Megan Ellison and Annapurna Pictures, like putting movie, putting money into these like auteurs movies. But for the most part, the movies that filled the bulk of the year, you know, 10 years ago, they just aren't being made anymore because you got to get that four quadrant picture out. So you're either talking about movies being made under a million or over a hundred million. And yeah. it's just a weird, weird thing See, in the like middle. Giant, like giant movies, like would Jerry Maguire be made today? <laughs> Yeah, like right. that was a huge hit. And like, yeah, would somebody green light Jerry Maguire? Probably not. Or well, I think you could as get as a gets. movie just, I mean, like look at David O. Russell and guys like that, you know, mm-hmm. Wes Anderson and, and P.T. Anderson and those guys. I mean, they can get stuff made, but it's because they have the brand name. You know, they know there's going to be an audience for that. Right. But, but even even them, I mean, you're talking about, again, that's Megan Ellison. You know, she's a billionaire's daughter who's decided to take her money and give it to directors who aren't getting, I mean, the, the master, you know, she's done, she's, she's funded a ton of those movies at the David, David O. Russell movies too. She decided to put her money behind artists, uh, where the studios are afraid to sometimes. I mean, even look at like Spielberg was saying he was having trouble getting money for Lincoln. It was going to be a TV movie because he, mm. he, he couldn't get the money to, to make it as a theatrical movie. There's, it's just crazy how afraid. Hollywood is of of taking chances anymore, and a lot of that is because those movies are swallowed up by by torrents. Well, I want to make sure we um, have enough time to talk about Tex Montana will survive. Can we do a segue into that and and talk about how you've approached that, and especially this kind of unique way that you guys are using Kickstarter to fund it? Or it's not being funded, but it's it's a way to control the distribution process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tex Montana will survive this movie. We shot it two years ago, but then our day jobs took hold again. Uh, but we're trying to use Kickstarter to basically buy them. Like, we want the internet to buy the movie off of. The way that someone would go to Sundance and buy a movie for a million dollars off of filmmakers. We want the internet to do that. We want to act, it's a finished film and we want uh, – if we hit our goal, we're just going to give the movie to the internet via Creative Commons. So that way torrenting will be completely allowed and encouraged. Um, we'll, we'll have DVDs that you can burn with artwork that you could print and, and we'll have it on YouTube and Vimeo. So this was kind of our reaction to piracy, which is that like, rather than vilify the torrents, like let's use them, um, as a distribution method. Um, so, you know, and it, I mean, hopefully it works. Uh, yeah, the days are ticking down, but, um, what, you know, it's a way to, to, um, Try and get a hold of those people who did torrent the movie who would have paid for it as well. You know, these are, there are, you know, we got, we put up, um, a comment on some of our torrents on some of these torrent sites year, a couple of years ago, just saying, look, we're not passing judgment. Um, but we're, you know, we're day job filmmakers. You know, we're barely getting by. We made this movie for six grand. If you like what you see, um, you know, consider kicking in. And we had a lot of, People donate money through that. And so those are the kind of people who use torrents that we're hoping that we can get 
ahead of time rather than slowly letting the movie roll out traditionally like the battery did and having people in Australia go, well, I don't know when it's going to be in Australia, so I'm just going to download it now. So if we can just get it all up front, then maybe we'll have the cushion to take time off work and make a movie and then everybody everywhere in the world can see it at the same time if they want to. So does that mean that you don't have – I mean when you do Creative Commons, does that mean that you no longer have ownership of it or how does that work? Uh, the the particular creative there's – a, there's a couple Creative Commons licenses but the one we're going to be using um, basically means that uh, you have to give us credit for the movie mm-hmm. and that you can – you can't profit off of the movie itself. Um, as in the audience can't profit off the movie, but the audience will be allowed to like remix it or so on. Like if they, they wanted to take audio from it and use it in something that they make, they, they can make profit off of that. So, um, you're kind of allowed to mess with the movie. Um, but other than that, you're totally allowed to share it and do everything else. So the only thing is that we, we still have to get credit and, um, uh, yeah, basically, you, know. you, you can't just put it in your own box and sell it as is in a store, but you can use it to remake art, right? It's, it's artists saying, you know, here here's a piece of art. If you want to make a different piece of art from our art, by all means, do it. Yeah. Um, if you yeah. want to sample it and put it into a dance mix, you can, and you can make money off that <laughs> dance mix. We're not, you know, like that's that's the kind of license that it is. I think the bare bone bongo scene would be great as a... Rave. I, my friend oh. already did this. The, the composer already <laughs> did that. I'm and, sure and, someone else could do it out there too. Though I would love to be in like Prague and hear like baby, <laughs> that would be amazing. You watch it becomes like this huge hit. The guy's like like a millionaire. Like oh yeah, like size number one song. dance number one dance song in the world is Baby Bear Bones by like Screech or something. <laughs> yeah, and we're we're over here going, why did we do this? <laughs> uh, so yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just, well, I was just going to, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I think one of the things that I, I liked about your article too, was just your kind of honesty about how difficult it is to make a living as an indie filmmaker. And since we're all about indie filmmaking, um, you know, can you, can you talk a little bit about that? The, the idea of being able to make a living as a filmmaker and what you guys do, which is more like you have day jobs and you make indie films. I mean, is, is there a goal to move everything to being like a hundred percent filmmakers? What is your view on that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, that's my goal. That's, that's 100% my goal is I, I just want to make movies for a living. And I'm not talking about, you know, making movies and being like a a multi, multi millionaire, even though that would be nice. I would just love to make a comfortable living and, and make movies as a job, you know, and it doesn't seem like it should be that difficult. I mean, when you see the money that you, that can, that can come in from a small budget movie, I mean, this is sustainable if, if you could start getting enough, you know, time to make movies and put more movies out in the world. It, it kind of snowballs. I mean, I know jo- Joe Swanberg famously said that too. You know, he's like, you know, once you get three or four movies out in the world, every time you make another one, then everyone, you get another press push. Everyone talks about your other movies. You get a kick up on the rentals or the sales of those previous movies and it just kind of snowballs every time. And so he's made a career out of just making like a million movies and just kind of, kind of living that way. But I do believe there's a way to build an audience slowly and get, and get enough of a return 
so that you can keep equity in your own movie the next time you make it and then make a little bit more money the next time you release another movie and suddenly you know you're sustaining yourself by by telling stories and making art i do i do believe it's possible i don't know i'm getting old i'm gonna die so probably not it's gonna happen <laughs> soon or i'm definitely gonna be managing a bar somewhere <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked to a couple of filmmakers who are full-time, not necessarily making their own projects, but they're directors for hire or whatever. They're, those are uh, and they, they say that – sorry? I said those are called unicorns. Unicorns are the are the d- people making films for a living. But no, he's saying they're directors for hire, not, uh, oh, not yeah. making their own thing. Well, so. I mean the, the thing that they've said is that they – it's not like before where you'd like make a film every three years. It's like these people are making two, three films a year. You know, and there's just this mass production. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, that's what we've been saying forever. We need to generate content. I mean, because you look at the people making a ton of money on YouTube because they're putting up content every week. Everyone wants more stuff. You know, if we could get to the point where we were shooting a movie, you know, uh, in finishing pre or finishing all post production within you know nine ten months, and then starting work on another movie at the end of the same year, then you know that's that's the goal is to be able to like maybe start working on two movies a year, one at the beginning, yeah. one at Jeremy, the end. Jeremy always talks about that, and I'm like. But I'm doing all the post-production. No, but that's the whole point too is to make enough money to where he doesn't have to do that anymore. And luckily – and that's another thing that you'll realize you know, once you start doing this is that you build a network and you know, now you've, we've met people who, who, who will do those jobs for us, who we can hire, who we trust to do those jobs and it can fit within the budget that we're talking about so the Christian doesn't have to do everything. I mean yeah. eventually you'll meet people who, who can help you in this process. I mean the network of filmmakers that we've met – since we toured the battery is has been invaluable but it's always hard it's always hard to to even think about like scaling up like that and being like can you can you keep the quality up two times a year you know that's scary we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show um I, I mean, like, just in three years, you have six movies, and it's like, man, I can't even imagine three years from now having six movies out there, right? And having them all be quality, so that's that's scary too. Yeah, that's another thing. I'm incri- well, especially with the way I write, it'll never happen. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's another, but that's another thing too. Is like I, I have been, I have thought about a lot. That I wish I could just pull my standards down a little bit, you know, it's like, maybe my standards don't seem high to everybody else, but I have serious quality standards with what I write and what, what I feel like is worth making the same way Christian has ridiculous standards about, you know, you know what he does technically with the camera and color and sound and everything like that. Like he will, he will futz with something for weeks and I'll just be like, ah, let it go. But I'll be the same way with the scene. I'll tweak a scene while I'm writing it forever. And it's just one of those things where you're never going to get, enough done uh you know to create this kind of a content generator like we're talking about if we if we have such high standards but uh i don't know there's got to be a middle ground somewhere it seems like you know with the following that you guys have been building have you ever considered approaching a production company i mean going and you know putting together a script and saying okay and going for more of a traditional not so ultra independent but going and have you been able to keep that following i mean do you have like some way to to be in touch with your fans other i mean is it Primarily Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Well, we didn't even touch on this. Yeah. One of the main reasons, uh, one of the main other reasons we made Tex Montana is because I wrote a script that I love that, um, you know, I started getting a lot of 
a lot of attention after the battery made the rounds. I started doing the water bottle tour. I've talked to the companies. I've talked to agents, and I've gotten very close. We've gone down the whole casting route path, and we've gotten far, far along the, the route to the traditional funding of making my new script. And then it always just kind of fizzles out in one way or another. You know, you hear that, oh, we love your unique voice, and it's so it's so interesting, and, and it's so you. And then, you know, once you get up to like two two hundred fifty three hundred thousand dollars $300,000, they start trying to kind of, you know, buff a little bit of that personality out of it. Well, can't we explain where the monster comes from? And can't we cast this person even though they're way too young? And it's, it just becomes like, oh man, the, the concessions you have to make for such a small amount of money is demoralizing. And after about a year and a half of that, that's why we decided, you know, let's just go back in the woods and make Tex Montana because we wanted to not have to get permission to make a movie again. It's so frustrating. To feel like you got your foot in the door in a business that you love and then it's just the wheels turn so slow that you just like at some point we just like we got to go do this again because it, we're going it, to it's going to tear our souls apart if we keep waiting for somebody to say, OK, here's the money. Go make your movie. Um, so that even though and, and honestly, it's still happening right now. Like we that script is still out there. I am on the cusp of another going down another avenue to get that movie made. And it's, you know, I feel really good about this one, but I felt really good about some before. So I've gotten a little bit cynical about that process. Um, and so there's a part, <laughs> there's a part of me that says, you know what, that's fine. Let that script do what it's going to do through the system. And let's still remind ourselves that we got to go and make our own movies. If no one ever gives us the permission. Plus there's, there's something that like nobody ever talks about, but it's, it's crazy with all of these budgets getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, if a production company comes to you and hires you on as director for a quarter million dollar movie, um, your pay as director is probably around five thousand dollars and then you're expected to work on the movie for um pretty much a solid year and then promotion and so on and um it's like how do you how do you even make a quarter million dollar movie and live off of five thousand dollars for a year and a half to two years while you make and promote the movie it's kind of insane and no one has been able to explain that to me no literally no one i've talked to filmmakers i know like who, are, who seem very successful and no one's been able to explain, okay, you get a fee, you know, you get your, your rate for actually filming the movie. But what about when it's time to go into post and it's time to, you know, edit and then do sound and then promote and then like, what, 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 how are you making a living then? No one can explain it. I still don't know. Five years in, five years after the making of the battery, we've made another movie. You know, I've, I've talked to people. I've gotten meetings. I've talked to managers. I've talked to heads of studios. I have no idea, no idea how you're supposed yeah. I mean, that $5,000 would be gone before you come out of pre-production. You know, you just two or three months of, of rent and food and so on. You know, if you want to, if you, and if you're making a quarter million dollar movie, you got to make a really good movie. So you really got to like be in there, um, you know, doing months of pre-production and months of post-production and months of promotion. It's just, uh, it seems crazy to me. I do feel like that's one of the pitfalls of the fact that everybody can make a movie now is that it's almost expected that just like, well, that's the deal with it. Like you, you know, it's. I remember that. I don't know why this popped into my head, but the, there's a scene in um, A League of Their Own where they reveal that the girl baseball players are going to have to wear these little skirts and everyone guffaws. And he goes, ladies, there are 64 women getting on a bus back home right now that'll play in a bikini if, if, if I ask them to. And you kind of get that feeling where it's like, hey, <laughs> if you can't make a movie and live for this fee, then, hey, I got a line of kids who want this job. I got a line of filmmakers 
who want to be in this position. Sorry, that's just the way it is nowadays. And that's it's just like, God, is that and really? It, and from a, like, from a production standpoint, it's kind of like, well, don't you want your director to not be worrying about how he's paying the rent? You know, like that's the last mm-hmm. thing he needs to be worrying about when he's in charge of your, you know, f- even half million dollar movie. Uh, so that's that's something yeah we can't crack it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of ego going on there, and people don't really disclose. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I and I, I have a friend, you know, who, who who's a filmmaker, a pretty successful filmmaker, and you know, he he decided to go around it and raise the money for his movie on his own, and then just paid himself a a decent salary, like out of the budget. Like I'm this is how much, I'm raising the money to make this movie on this budget. This is how much I'm paying myself to do it. I wrote it. I'm going to direct it, and that's that. And uh, I was like, well, that's a you know that's a pretty good pretty good. Way Way to do it if you can get around the, all the gatekeepers and just uh, be your own production company. So I don't know. This sounds like a demoralizing way to go out. <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, what advice do you have indie, to indie filmmakers that are out there that want to make their first film and want to kind of follow in your footsteps? You got to have friends. You got to have friends who will help you out. People who are going to be in the trenches with you, in the mud, splashing around in the dirt, willing to do anything they can to get it done. That's You're not going to get anywhere if you don't have... If you don't have loyal people on your side, um, you got to you got to plan as much as you can ahead of time. And you got to write, you know, your story, a good story around what you can get, what you know you have, and then you got to not freak out about the things that you think might fail or you'll never do it. And my advice would be that um, you got to have at least one skill that you can sell to others, you know, whether it be cinematography or sound design or any of that, like, you know, that's where you, I mean, that's where your money is likely to come in the first couple films is from the work in between making your own films. Um, just like we have friends that are editors and so on and they go and they get paid to edit other people's movies and then they edit their movies for free. Yeah. And the irony of this whole process is that I, I only wrote the battery originally because I didn't want to go and audition for roles as an actor. And I'm, I'm about to be in my fifth feature film since the battery came out. And that's simply from meeting filmmakers uh, on the festival circuit, becoming fans of their work and them fans of my work and then them calling me up and going, hey, I, I'm about to go and make this movie. i got a great role for you in it. And just suddenly I'm being cast without auditioning when, uh, you know, this whole thing was was me railing against the process of auditioning. So you end up, you know, you find a little skill and hopefully you can yeah. you can tangentially work in, in film. I, I actually forgot to ask you about that. What was the experience of working on Spring like? Because that's that's actually one of my favorite movies from, you know, the past couple of years. Um um, it's, what was that working with Justin and uh, Aaron? It was amazing. You know, Justin and Aaron were actually the first filmmakers uh, I met on the circuit. We met them very briefly in Amsterdam. I thought they were full of themselves. Uh, <laughs> then we met them again for much longer in uh, Brazil, and they told us that they thought we were full of the, ourselves when they saw us in Amsterdam. And then we became great friends, and I loved them to death. We had a wonderful time. Um, and just being on their set's amazing because those two guys, I mean, Justin's a really, really, really clever and creative screenwriter and director. And Aaron is just, you know, he's like Justin's Christian. He's a, you know, he's an incredibly talented guy and he's really technical. So to watch them kind of confer, uh, you know, with each other on set about a scene and then, and then break up and then go and do their individual things is amazing. To watch that set work like clockwork really helped me, um, you know, 
cache things away for the next time I'm I'm directing to. It's, it's really great. Was there a lot of? It seemed like the scenes were very loose and kind of. Uh, yeah, well, it's funny too because they they definitely let me improv. Uh, I think that the part of that was me learning on the fly what it's like to be on a real set. You know, because you know things got to move. You got to make lunch. You got to make your days. You got to make your time. The eighties walking around talking. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And you start to worry that if you if you goof off or follow, you know, follow a thread down some weird improv line that you're going to you're going to throw off the entire schedule of the day. So I kind of boxed myself in a little bit and um, I didn't really go as far as I'd have wanted to. But they were certainly open to my my improv lines. What's interesting is you throw out an improv and then they'll either say nothing or say, oh, my God, that was really funny. Do that again. Or actually, this time, don't do that thing. Uh, but I was really boxing myself in. And then I get down to uh, the set down San Diego where we're sh- uh, shooting in the bar. Vinny Caron, who is uh, one of the leads in their first movie, Resolution. And apparently he don't give a crap about no days or schedules because <laughs> he was just riffing left and right. And all I could think was, man, man, I should have done what Vinny did. Vinny don't care. Vinny just bees Vinny. Vinny um, don't give a shit. Vinny don't give a shit. <laughs> Um, so, but yeah, no, it's such a, it's such a blast. I, mean, I can't wait to work with those guys again. They're really, really good friends. Um, so I want to make sure that you guys, um, what, what is the website to go to for Tex Montana? How can people get in touch with you guys? What's the best way to find out more and all that great stuff? You can go to texmontana.com. That'll take you right to our campaign page. We are about nine days away from this thing being over, which means if we succeed, you're only about 15 to 17 days away from actually seeing this thing because we're just going to release it. It's done. Um, Textmontana.com. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Jeremy Gardner. And I'm at Christian Stella. I'm only Mr. because every other permutation of Jeremy Gardner was taken. So it's not like I'm calling myself Mr. But there was just no way to (laughs) do that. Um, Yeah. Uh, And then you can find us on Facebook at TexMontana or The Battery on Facebook. Uh, But TexMontana.com or Twitter. We're really active on Twitter. Um, Yeah. I mean, people can just like ask me stupid camera questions. I'll answer. It doesn't matter. I mean, there's no no question too stupid. I'll just call it stupid on, on a podcast one day. Yeah, well, that's what we, we've always been. I, I, I always used to say, like, you know, what, what, whatever you think of Kevin Smith's films, the fact that he makes himself available to so many people and is so open about the process was something we wanted to ape. Um, and we try to do that. You know, we, we, we try not to ever let an email about a question about filmmaking go unanswered. So, um, Whatever you got, throw it at us. Awesome, guys. Well, I really appreciate your time, and you know, uh, I look forward to you know seeing the film. How how are you going to release it when it comes out? Are you just going to put it? Do you do you assume that things will just kind of like explode on their own, or are you going to put it somewhere specific, uh, like we, iTunes? Yeah, we're, uh, basically, if we hit the goal, um, two weeks after the campaign ends, uh, we're going to release it on YouTube and Vimeo. And the Vimeo version will have the download button unlocked, so you'll be able to download it 1080p from Vimeo. Um, and then there's going to be torrents of in all kinds of shapes and sizes, and of DVDs and Blu-rays with artwork. Um, and then you know, textmontana.com at that point will just be kind of a, a repository of all the different ways you can get it. 
Um, and at that point, then people can post it anywhere else if there's places that we don't know. The only places we're not going to be doing are places like iTunes, et cetera, because then we'd have to charge for the movie. And that's the whole point is that after this campaign, we're not going to charge for it ever again. Uh, so that's it. I mean, if they'd be, if they'd be willing to put it up for free, I'd put it on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And so. if we don't hit our goal, we're going to take the hard drive with the movie and we're going to film ourselves smashing it with a hand. <laughs> no, we'll let receive it. Well, guys, I really appreciate it. Is there anything else? Are we good? No, that's it. Textmontana.com. Thank you so much for, for the forum. Uh, thank you, guys. It's a really appreciate fun chat. It. I want to thank Jason so much for doing such an amazing job with this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmMuscle.com forward slash 688. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com. Subscribe and leave a good review for the show It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. 